Ladies and gentlemen, I am thrilled to announce today uh, on the podcast we have Michael Heldsinger. Uh, he's the host of Murky Waters podcast and also a marine scientist uh, with a specialization in all things shark. I've got a list of questions I'm dying to ask him to find out a little bit more uh, about sharks. Um, my personal relationship with them is uh, born in the UK, obviously, and have lived in Australia for the last five years. Uh, since being over here, um, I myself have uh, started partaking in water sports activities, mostly surfing, a bit of swimming, um, but sharks are never far from your mind. So I just wanted to uh, throw a few questions at him um, and find out the answers to a lot of these things that I've been told along the way. I don't know if, they, if they're true or not, but he's here to help clear up uh, some old wives' tales, some myths, uh, and tell us some facts, and give us a bit more information about sharks, useful for anyone uh, with an interest in sharks, or anyone who's into surfing, or just generally um, playing by the water. Some great take-home facts from Michael. Untracked Wilds, the podcast exploring the world's wild places, with your host, Dan Rees. Michael, welcome to the podcast. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? Has this love affair of the oceans and sharks? Is this something you developed in a young age? Have you always lived around the water? I was going to say, firstly, thanks so much for... Um, you're letting me on the podcast today. I've really enjoyed the podcast episodes, the few that I've listened to already. Thanks uh, so much. So yeah, a bit of background. Oh, my pleasure, man. So a bit of background. Um, I am in Western Australia. So I guess what got me into sharks and this research and this niche field was just my experience diving and surfing and growing up along the coast in Western Australia. Like I'm so privileged to grow up in WA. It's such a beautiful part of the world. And just diving and um, probably the hype that the media has created and, and experiences and, and, and my fear for sharks was a big driver. And then I researched, uh, I did a marine science undergraduate degree at University of Western Australia. And during my undergrad, I went to South Africa and attended an internship with one of my close friends. Mm. The internship was studying white sharks in Mossel Bay. They had a... Uh, um, reliable resident population of white sharks in the area. And they did some really interesting research and I just decided to go over there and, and seeing sharks during the research and my, my experience with cage diving in South Africa just blew my mind. And I realized that the sharks that I feared and that I guess the persona, not yeah, the persona that they were given in Western Australia wasn't, wasn't justified. And, um, you know, I, I changed my whole perspective and I came home and I wanted to, to research sharks and find a way we can more harmoniously live with them, especially in, in WA where people were so fearful. To give some context, this was a time in 2014, so the, the government was deploying um, baited and lethal drum lines along the coast of Western yeah. Australia. We were on the spotlight on the global stage um, for our shark management at the mm -hmm. time and was quite divided because lots of people were, were outraged about the shark attacks, but then a lot of people were against culling them. So yeah, I, I thought that was a big problem and 
thought it'd be really interesting to research and and the field work we just did in South Africa was amazing you know working mm-hmm. the boat and getting out and 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 seeing these like prehistoric predators was just incredible so after that I wanted to um to research sharks more and ended up in New Zealand and I'm about that, that was part of a masters and I've been there the last few years and um, I've almost finished my thesis and submitting in the, in the next week or so. So congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. It's getting very close. Very excited. Um, so, yeah. That, that's basically a background of, of how I got into amazing. what I'm saying. So growing up in WA, your childhood must've been very much synonymous with oceans, the water, everything like that. Yeah, I think like most, a lot of people in Western Australia can vouch that we have the most beautiful beaches in the world. So I grew up, you know, by the beach, playing on the shore. Um, I started surfing at a young age and I think that's where my, my love for the ocean really evolved. And that's that's where it all, all, all stemmed from. And then surfing turned into diving with mates. I had some of my best mates, which was really lucky at the time, had boats so we all went into diving and they got me into spear fishing and to cray fishing and from there I think yeah that that's my, my love of the ocean but then also hand in hand was that healthy respect for sharks and it was something that I completely feared like I remember the first time I watched Jaws as a kid yeah and I was just absolutely terrified <laughs> and I think subconsciously that just affects you especially in a place where sharks all too often are you know displayed on the front page of the newspaper so I think growing up with that I was, I was always quite fearful of the sharks I didn't really understand why um, but I know I, I always had a feeling, I guess it was my mind playing tricks on me, but it was really hard for me to, to, you know, determine the facts from the fiction. So that's a really fantastic point. When you were growing up in WA, were you regularly seeing sharks vilified by the media, newspapers, etc., as these horrific killers? Oh, absolutely. Like you couldn't get a more charismatic species, I think, that the news would use to their advantage because people are fascinated by what we feel and we fear sharks, you know, they're a prehistoric predator, especially the largest species, the large predator species like white sharks and tiger sharks and bull sharks, the ones, the ones that we all get over here. And, you know, it draws people's attention. The news sells, um, fear sells. If you look at most mm. news around the world, it's based, based around fear. Mm. And sharks, unfortunately are, you know, the, the perfect example of fear. <laughs> Um, so yeah, growing up in Western Australia, I saw lots of newspapers, newspaper headlines and um, front page covers of sharks. And it'd just be a big shark biting something. And then in, really? in capital letters, would it be like shark attack or something very emotive, you know, yeah. shark stalks swimmer or shark stalks boat. It's just emotive language that, yeah. you know, that draws people to the headline and to the newspaper. So, so people buy it but at the same time it, it's quite negative because it puts mm. them in a really negative um perception and at the same time it's also constant constantly reminding of sharks so we may only have like a set number of incidences in australia and western australia but mm-hmm. the amount of coverage they get you almost feel like there's sharks there all the time waiting and for yeah, you no <laughs> yeah there's no break from sharks or you go in the ocean you're, you're constantly unsafe and I think there's a lot of fiction and, and it's a lot of misleading media surrounding mm. that. And I think that's just the nature, nature of media in general. Have you ever encountered a shark yourself out, out on the water? 
Uh, yeah. So I've seen um, my, probably my favorite encounter was with a big tiger shark. It was about three meters. Wow. Three meters. Yeah. We were spearfishing in um, Western Australia, just north uh, in a place called Nalu. And mm-hmm. I was spearfishing with a bunch of friends and we we're out the back. I think we'd shot a couple of fish. We had a float and on the float there was a hook and um, we were putting the, the float was attached by a line to one of my mates. So we we're putting the fish that we caught on, on the float and then my mate just yelled out shark and I was by myself. I yelled out my other mate who was a little way away off and mm-hmm. we all swam and then the tiger shark just approached us, swam around us and we released the bait and then we ended up just swimming in. But that moment went so slowly and the tiger shark came, like swam right up to us. It wasn't aggressive. It was more curious, but we could tell that we were definitely not the apex predator out there. It was mesmerizing to say the least and swam around us. And I think my mate, he was an experienced spear fisherman released the fish, which was a smart call. And, I remember just watching the float line as we swam away sink and then pop up as the shark was obviously taking the fish. Uh, Unreal experience. And I didn't like, I was on the edge of, you know, being very fearful, but also just completely in awe of just this amazing, so big and has this, the colorations and the side are just stunning. And I just could, it was was probably one of my most amazing encounters I've ever had in my life. Wow, that's incredible. What goes through someone's mind when they see a three-meter tiger shark? The funny thing is that you always have an idea of how you react when something, when you see something like that, or you always think you'll do something specifically to deal with a threat. But when I saw that shark, I, I honestly just froze. I could not believe it. It felt surreal. And, and to see this thing just, you know, so streamlined and, and just mm. cruising in the water, I, I couldn't really believe it. I eventually, you know, came out of it and realized that, you know, this is a big tiger shark. Um, we should probably, <laughs> probably form a wall. So like we all, we formed a wall together and like we held up our guns just to have something in between <laughs> us and the shark cruised and then it would disappear. And it were, I think it was just cruising around us, just sussing what was going on. Um, but yeah, in my mind, I was, I was petrified, but at the same time, just, just in awe, couldn't believe it. So that sounds like a really magical experience uh, with one of the world's apex predators. Yeah, definitely. It was it was one of those experiences I'll, I'll never forget. And it's something that, you know, I absolutely cherish. And, and I, I hope to have so many more, you know, as, as I've been studying them, like it just gives me appreciation about them. And I want to go out diving. I want to go see them and have, keep having encounters like this. There's so many encounters people have with tiger sharks up north of Western Australia. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had friends film them at, at whale carcasses mm-hmm. and just feel massive schools of sharks up there. So, like, it's a very productive region for sharks um, in the northwest of Western Australia. So yeah. I'm sure now that I'm back in WA, I'll, I'll get up there and hopefully have some cool encounters like that again. So you mentioned the shark calls. As someone who grew up when this kind of sensationalism in the media regarding sharks was taking place, uh, what what was kind of happening with the shark calls? Give me a bit of an idea of what was taking place. Yeah, so I think leading up into 2014, we had a, a spike in fatal shark attacks, and it's it seems to be a, a reoccurring trend 
with shark bites and fatalities, you know, in Australia and the world that you have mm. this random spike and there'll be a lot of fatalities. And then, you know, with, with these fatalities and, and back in 2014, you know, the government is responsible for our, our safety. Yeah. And yeah. So they, they felt they needed to do something. Um, and so I think it resulted in policy that was driven more by emotion and not by reason. And yeah. something like that, they just decided that, you know, there's so many, there's, there's been this amount of fatalities, you know, people have lost, you know, loved ones yeah. in WA. It's, just, it's, it's immensely sad. And um, the government wanted to do something, so they introduced a shark cull, which was basically targeting um, any shark over three metres and killing it. Um, and so they placed these baited drum lines. They're called drum lines. They're basically just boys with large hooks with some bait, and then a shark would uh, bite one of the drum lines, and then so I think the fish Department of Fisheries at the time would go out and I think it would set a beacon or they'd be notified if a shark had bitten something and then they'd mm-hmm. go out or, or they'd just continually monitor these um, drum lines and they deployed them and any shark that they had. And it had to be out of the dangerous species, which is the three, you know, the three main yeah. species that we refer to as being the big three that pose the biggest threats to humans, which are the white sharks, bull sharks and tiger sharks. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they'd kill any sharks over three metres. But it's just, there's lots of, that it hasn't been shown to be a really effective um, method or, or form of management for dealing with sharks. Mm-hmm. It, it, hasn't, it hadn't been shown to prevent a lot of shark attacks. People, I think, if people didn't have an understanding about um, shark management, they, the idea of that, oh, if you're going to kill that yeah. like shark and, you know, they're killing us, we kill them and then, you know, reduce their populations and stuff. And there's just all these theories that people thought there was rogue sharks going around like a specific shark that would stay in an area and continually target people and was responsible for more than one one fatality. So I think there was a lot of emotion behind it um, and it, it was really sad, but I just didn't think drum lines, and obviously it wasn't because the government ended up abandoning the, that form of yeah. management. So it given- wasn't appropriate. They've given it up now. Uh, yeah. So WA doesn't have lethal drum lines as far as I'm aware. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have smart drum lines, which is a trial that they're testing at the moment. So very similar to the lethal drum lines without being lethal. So they've got these um, uh, that they notify uh, fisheries or, or whoever's in, responsible for monitoring the, the smart drum lines as soon as a shark or anything bites into these hooks and then they go out there and then they they do they tag the shark with multiple tags and accelerometer to make sure it survives mm-hmm. so they can track its acceleration i'm pretty sure their own tag so i'd be assuming like a gps tag and um, maybe an acoustic tag as well and then they deploy the shark a kilometer uh, further offshore so there'd been some previous research in recipe in in Brazil uh, yeah. using these, this form of um, management for dealing with sharks coming to coastal areas and interacting yeah, with yeah, people yeah. and being, being, there being bites and stuff. And they've also got it in New South Wales. They've been doing drum lines for a while and there's been some pretty positive research about it. So it is, it is a bit of an invasive form of management, but um, it's so much better than 
lethal drum lines. And from a scientist's point of view, you can get really good information about the shark. And for apps where they're monitoring shark movements um, and yeah, basically monitoring shark movements. It's really useful data because we can, if you tag all the sharks that you pick up on those drum lines, the smart drum lines, then you can track their movements. You can learn a lot about their distribution, yeah, where they're uh, their habitat use, um, their residency in different areas, all, all useful information for scientists and especially for um, ocean safety to know, you know, where, where they are and they've got like um, acoustic receivers, the yeah. boys that receive um, the acoustic signal that the tags um, emit and then they're notified if a shark's in a specific area. I don't know how instant that technology is, um, but, yeah, this is all shark, – shark monitoring is huge in Western Australia. We've had so many different forms of shark um, deterrents that have been tested and – yeah, it's it's just I think people people were desperate to for, for something, and I think smart drumlines do pose a more promising solution than than shark nets or fatal drumlines. I do actually have some questions here regarding tracking sharks, but before we get onto that, I know you mentioned uh, your first experience of sharks came in South Africa. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Uh, yeah, so the first time I saw a, a white shark was in Hans Bay in South Africa. Uh, I, was, I went cage diving when I was 17. My heritage is African, so I've got lots mm. of family in South Africa. So we just went on a family trip and I happened to, or my family just happened to go cage diving in a place that was pretty renowned to have some, uh, a, a good population of, of large white sharks. Pretty big white sharks. <laughs> just, mate, it was absolutely stunning. Like it was an incredible experience, something so special to share with my family. And, and I just could not believe it. It blew my mind to at that age to see a predator that close. That whole trip was like that. There's so many amazing and large um, animals in Africa, just these wild animals that we don't have in lots mm. of other parts. So that was an amazing trip. And then the expedition, that trip you talk about in Mossel Bay, that was an internship in South Africa they yeah, yeah, yeah. At, at my uni and I, I applied for it and it was run through Oceans Research and they, they run this internship program. It's amazing and I'm pretty sure they're still doing it nowadays. A lot of shark scientists have come out of it, so I'd highly recommend it for anyone that was interested in sharks and pursuing this type of research because it gives you – really good hands-on experience of um, researching sharks, the yeah. type of field work scientists get up to. And that was the most experience I've had every day with sharks. We went on the boat most days. The weather was pretty consistent. And we went to spots where we'd sometimes have 15 sharks around the boat. 15 so, sharks, 15 great yeah. white sharks. Yeah, so that, that had a very resident, I think they set up this research center in this particular area because they had the highest resident number of white sharks in South Africa. So South Africa is already known to be pretty sharky. Yeah, but yeah. They set up here so they could get some really good information. A lot of the sharks are, are small, so they're like under three, three meters. But on the last day, the lucky last day, we found, uh, we identified a shark um, and the guy, the main researcher that was there, who'd been there for a while, reckons the shark was five metres and that it was the largest. Oh my God, five metres. That is huge. Yeah, I think they, they get like white sharks. So there is um, white sharks, the females are a lot bigger. 
Mm-hmm. And they've reported, there's been reports for white sharks to get up to like seven meters, but I don't know the validity of those reports. I think the largest one is, you know, around six to seven meters it's been reported. But yeah, they have that sexual dimorphism where the females in, in lots of species, almost species yeah. sharks, the females are, are quite a bit bigger. It's the same with um, tiger sharks as well and bull sharks. The females are, are quite, quite a bit bigger. Yeah, fascinating. When you saw the sharks, what were they doing? Were they feeding? Because they say sharks go into a bit of a feeding frenzy. Is that is that true? Um, so sharks do go in a feeding frenzy, but there has to be prey. There has to be like a, a something like at a whale carcass, you know, sharks have been a feeding frenzy because there's just so much sustenance in one place. So if you're a large predator, you're roaming the ocean, you're in a pelagic environment, the you know, an open ocean that's so vast and there's not much in there, you know, they, they roam all these distances and prey can be quite few and far between. Yeah. So when you come up to something, say for white sharks, for instance, you find a whale carcass, there's just so much sustenance and so much food, food for them. So they go on an absolute feeding frenzy, but the majority of the time, and this is where people um, don't really understand, is that they're cruising. Like they don't mm-hmm. need, they don't want to expel energy that they, they're going to waste for no reason, you know. They're, yeah. Like any animal trying to survive in the wild, they have to be really smart. So when they hunt, they'll expel energy. But if they, if they, they hunt and they miss something, you know, that can potentially be fatal if they don't have a, another meal for a long time or, or something. So, yeah, most of the time sharks are, are cruising and when you see them underwater and you do you research them, you realise they aren't really, number one, that interested in you or number two, that aggressive or that they're really cruising. I think the myths that surround them really stemmed from, you know, movies that came out like Jaws and yeah. and all the terrifying movies of sharks that they'll they'll personified as you know giving being this all all relentless predator that just yeah. wanted to eat everything that came in its path hunting, hunting people, people down. down with a vengeance doing, yeah doing anything you know taking down i don't know if in some of the movies that come out nowadays i swear they take down like boat helicopters <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> that's their people the idea that they are you know um in in feeding feeding frenzies all the time but the reality is they're not like they most of the time are just cruising conserving energy and then you know they'll utilize different areas in the water column so there's it's really interesting because in the ocean you have it's it's a different space than yeah what is what is land land animals for us whereas they're utilizing the vertical um column of the water and they're also moving horizontally so they normally that just depends there's so many different variables at play whereas they're regulating their own body temperature white sharks can whereas um a lot of sharks can't so they'll cruise at different um depths within the water to that suits their personal preferences for temperature and and also wow. salinity and other variables um so yeah there, there's a lot of things most of the time they are cruising and they're not um, in feeding frenzies, but they will they will go on feeding frenzies when the opportunity presents itself. Wow, that's really, really interesting. You're listening to Untracked Wilds. Right, Michael, I've got some questions I'm going to throw your way 
the first one, the big question, what are the most dangerous sharks to humans? Uh, yeah, so the most dangerous sharks for humans are the big three. So you would have heard about them um, and they're white sharks. This is a list of um, from dangerous out of the most three to least dangerous. So mm-hmm. your white sharks are the most dangerous because they account for the most recorded um, fatalities of humans and that's according to the shark attack files and then your next most dangerous is tiger sharks and the next most dangerous after that is bull sharks wow that's really interesting i always thought bull sharks were the most dangerous that actually surprises me so what makes the great whites the most deadly uh, to humans uh, why are they killing more more people than say a, a tiger shark or a bull shark um i think to be honest, like I think it changes over time. It depends, you know, if there's there's a an area where there's a lot of encounters and then, then there are a lot of fatalities. I know in Australia, if you think of like over east in Ballina, and then if you think of on the west coast over here in Margaret River, like there's a lot of um, white shark incidences. Mm-hmm. Um, I think white sharks account for the most because they're just large predatory sharks. You know, they're wild animals. Um, they hunt animals that can resemble or animals that we resemble when we go surfing, diving, bodyboarding, you know, um, all of these other activities. I just think a lot of the time it's, it's mistaken identity. Yeah. Um, but they also overlap in coastal areas. So there's going to be a high chance of encounters when yeah. they are around. So in Western Australia, you know, we're all, we're all out and enjoying the ocean and stuff. So there's going to be encounters and unfortunately they, some of them can become fatal. So I think white sharks, I'm not sure specifically why white sharks have more fatalities than bull sharks. Um, but I think it's just because they are one of the, or they are the largest predatory shark, um, in the oceans and they prey upon some similar prey. And it's the same for tiger sharks and they're all, they're all formidable predators. All of them are, um, you know, I was saying before, white sharks can get up to, you know, seven metres and, and they've just, they're, they're, they're efficient predators to say the least. Um, <laughs> yeah, relative to, like I, I say all that, but then there's still such a minimal amount of shark attacks that happen around the world. They get hyped up and they're, they're devastating, especially on small communities when they happen. Um, but there isn't a, isn't a lot relative to other things. I know guys throw out facts out there, but there's definitely some things that put into perspective. Like if you think um, sharks are so dangerous, a lot of people don't understand just how dangerous swimming in the ocean is, you know, there's- Wow, that's true. That's a really good point. Oh, it's so dangerous. And it's not, we don't, if the media were like um, hyping up drownings, you know, people would be so scared of just swimming in the ocean. The way that they, the way that they put, portray sharks, if they did with a lot of things, I think they would be. Uh, people would be very skeptical about swimming in the ocean. You know, I think last year there was two hundred and forty-eight people that drowned, uh, and all fatally drowned in Australia, which is huge considering that last year there was eight fatal shark attacks. So. Mm lot more people drowning and then if you go further with that you know you look at the car accident statistics for for this year and it's like over a thousand people have have died from road-related deaths so i think it's all relative i I get i can understand when people talk about all these statistics you know like you're more likely to die 
from a vending machine or, or a toilet than a shark attack. And I don't think they're, they're, they take into the context that, you know, it's really dependent on where you are. You know, there's a lot of people that don't live by the coast. There's a lot of people that don't live in areas that are renowned for being sharky or there's a lot of people that just don't engage in water activities. So I think it's very dependent on where you are. The The risk is obviously a lot higher in places like Margaret River where that they have sharks and they've, they've got a history of fatalities. But even then it's so small and I think it's an inherent risk that we take as surfers and divers and ocean users when we go out because we accept the fact we could bang our head and, you know, knock ourselves out and drown or we could get caught in a rip or any of that. I think it's just, it's part of, you know, the the responsibility that we take when we go out. And that's, I think as long as, you know, well, there's no proof that sharks are targeting people. And from my personal experience, just from seeing uh, these sharks underwater, if they were targeting people, there's just no way we would survive. You know, they're, they're massive. Yeah, yeah. They're perfectly adapted for hunting. You know, they, their teeth are so sharp. They've got thousands of thousands of them. They're, there's just no way I speak for myself. I could physically defend myself against something like that if it wanted to eat me. But the reality is most majority of times they don't. And I think it's starting to surface all the encounters we have. You know, there was a, a video of Matt Wilkinson paddling the other day in a shark mm. circle that way. That would happen so much. And they're just, they're out there. It's the ocean, they're predators. And unfortunately there are, there are shark fatalities and shark bites, but in the scheme, scheme of things, it's so small compared to a lot of other things. And I think it's just an inherent risk we take when we go in the ocean and we want to enjoy it. And we've got to accept that the ocean is not a pool. It's a wild environment. You know, if, if you do really want to go for a swim and um, you're so scared, you can, you can, the chances of getting attacked in a shallow, in a shallow is so small, you know, you've got to keep it into perspective and, yeah, just I, I speak, I say these things because I've been lifeguarding for years in Western Australia yeah. as well. It's just a seasonal job that I do over the summer and just the amount of times people have come down and they've been hesitant to just, you know, dip in the water. And it's, you know, like, man, there's so many people swimming out in the ocean right now. You <laughs> swim. That's even more work drowning or you know <laughs> that's a great story I'm actually originally from the UK and my parents came out to visit me here and I tried to get them to go swimming out on the beach in Bondi but they wouldn't they were genuinely terrified that there were going to be sharks literally meters off the beach waiting for them I had to literally cajole them to come into the water for like the smallest swim they, they basically got to about water to literally maybe to their waist high uh, and then I took the most awkward photo of them trying to smile but also grimacing at the same time as they literally watched out for sharks in the shallows <laughs> at Bondi Beach. <laughs> Ridiculous. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a sad reality isn't it because I think it's just the way they're portrayed in the media and the hype the surrounding sharks people are generally scared to swim and you realise that you know that isn't realistic and <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's unjustified. I think you make a really good point about just swimming in the ocean. I think the the potential for uh, some kind of severe in- injury or loss of life from just swimming, getting pulled out into a rip, heavy surf, getting a little bit out of your depth um, is much more likely than a shark attack. Yeah, exactly. I think I think that's it. Like it's you know the world isn't a perfect safe haven where nothing's going to happen. Like we go out and. 
I think it's it's really well, I speak for myself. I just you've got to take personal responsibility when it comes to this. And and I'd be lying if I said I'm not scared of sharks. You know, I'm petrified of them, even though I study them. That's a great question, actually. Um, you're a lifeguard and you also do a lot of surfing. Does the fear of sharks ever go through your mind? Absolutely. Like it's something I've dealt with my whole life. Like growing up here um, in the context of Western Australia during the shark attacks and the media, everything like they're always, they were always in the back of my mind. And it's something that I definitely personally feared. Um, but I, it's something that I've tried to harness as much as I can and to be really smart, to like think about things rationally. Like if I'm surfing by myself, is it a good idea if it's dawn and, or dawn or dusk and it's a notorious place for seeing sharks? Like, is that smart? Like just, just trying to um, ground myself and, and realise when I'm being, you know, stupid or, or if, if I'm being unnecessarily risk averse and I'll be fine swimming or dipping in the ocean, you know. Yeah. So it's only... I'm yeah. I, I get scared of sharks. I'm I'm human like anyone else. Even though I study them, it doesn't mean I don't get fearful of them. They're predators, and you know they're efficient hunters. Um, they're, they're they're that's that's what they're designed to do. They're out there to survive. But I I try to keep it into perspective that we aren't on the menu. You know, for all the sharks that are out there in the world, for you know what they're capable of. There's very few fatalities. Um, and to keep that in pers- into perspective that the chances are so small and, you know, there's no point of me freaking out about something that potentially may never, uh, is probably never going to happen. Yeah. Um, and I may as well enjoy what I'm doing and, and, and think about, you know, be mindful about what I'm doing and probably just don't try and hurt myself in other ways that are more likely to actually, you know, result in something serious like bumping my head on reef or, yeah. or you know, shallow water or just, drowning from um diving for too long or yeah, yeah, yeah. very michael that's a really good point there's there's one thing i want to move on to next but before i do you mentioned dawn and dusk and this is something that i think a lot of people in and around australia talk about often that sharks are more dangerous at dawn and dusk they're more likely to be feeding um, and as a result you're more likely to be attacked at dawn and dusk are sharks more dangerous at dawn and dusk yeah, so dusk and dawn are higher danger times due to the position of light of the light. So you know how sad sharks are ambush predators. So it's the act of surprise that they'll get a lot of their prey. So if you're thinking about the classic example of white sharks, you know, when they breach in South Africa, they hit the seals with so much spread. The seals being such an agile um, animal can normally evade sharks. So if you see there's videos online where you can watch a white shark try and hunt a seal uh, where, where it's exposed and the seal is watching it. And it looks like the seal is just playing with the shark because they've lost that ability to surprise the seal and to ambush them. So a lot of them rely on it and it also means they utilise it at dawn and dusk as a tactical advantage to make it harder for their prey to spot their camouflage. It is known to be dusk and dawn when that you have these feeding frenzies and, that's really um, fascinating uh, yeah so um it's called crepuscular where some species are more active at dawn and dusk it's pretty like common in fishing that you know um the oceans there's a bit more 
activity. I think uh, my basic marine, marine science understanding is, you know, there's a, a lot of zooplankton and, and species rise during the night and then go down at uh, as the light starts to come in. And um, so they, they feed at night, the zooplankton come to feed up on the phytoplankton. And there's just a lot, those transitions between um, day, daytime and nighttime are quite productive times in the ocean in general. Um, but yes, a lot of species um, being ambush predators that sharks are, they, were, they do hunt at dawn and dusk. Um, so I think knowing that, like, a lot of sharks hunt at night. A lot of sharks are more active at night. Yeah. So it really depends on the species. Um, but yeah, I think personally, I, I go surfing dawn and dusk. Um, I would just try and at those times I'd make sure that I'm surfing with someone else. Um, and that, you know, I, 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 if I do a risk assessment or something, I just make sure that I'm comfortable doing what I'm doing. And if you get, if you get a sharky vibe, if you know, surfing in a river, river mouth or somewhere that you just doesn't feel right. I think trust those gut instincts and go in like be smart. Um, but yeah, they are, they are more active at dawn and dusk from my understanding, but also um, they are more active at nighttime. So they, a lot of species are diurnal hunters. Um, so there's been research that shows uh, at nighttime or, you know, when it's overcast, it might increase their ability to camouflage. So yeah, that's, I think, um, swimming at nighttime, I go diving at nighttime. It uh, sometimes seems to be scary. I don't do, don't do it often, but I think just avoid avoiding all those stuff, all those things, water activities at nighttime is probably a good call just with the amount of added danger that comes along with not being able to see what you're doing and, um, potentially hurting yourself. So, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So you mentioned this as well. So if you're out surfing and a shark wants to get you, they will, as they're perfectly formed predators. So so what senses are sharks using to identify their prey? So, yeah, with your question about, you know, five senses of sharks or the, what the senses that sharks engage when they hunt, yeah. they're similar to us. They've got the five senses, so they can touch, they can smell, they can hear, they can taste. They're fascinating animals because they have another uh, sense that we don't have, which is the electroreception. So they have these black pores in the, on their snouts and they act as electroreceptors. This is all called the ampullae of Lorenzini. And uh, that those those um, pores are filled with conductive jelly and they can sense electronic electrical signals in the water. So it's one of their senses that they'll use when they're hunting. It's not something they'll use in long distances. So it's more something when, oh, sorry. Um, it's more something now. So those, uh, oh, sorry, it's my girlfriend. Let me turn my phone aside. <laughs> You're all good. <laughs> so you were saying that they have yeah, so I'll get into posts on the nose, which they use in short distances. Yeah, so they've got different sensors that they harness um, and during, say, say, in a predation event when they're going to hunt something, they would use, you know, sensors like us. They can hear really low frequencies from really far away. They can, they've got really sensitive smells so they can smell. They've actually got four nostrils or lots of species do. And so water goes, it's their sense of smell is directional. So water goes through one nostril, two nostrils at the front on, on either side of the snout and then outside. So they can, 
they can kind of sense this where the smell is coming from for the direction they can hear things from really far away and then when they hone in they've got they've actually got really good eyesight um it depends on the species because there's when we're talking of sharks and this is the ironic thing we think of the three sharks that we've been talking about on this Mm. episode but there's over 500 species of sharks. There's so many. A lot of them are actually quite small. They're mesopredatory sharks. Um, so all these senses and, and, and the specific, the degree to which they rely on them varies per species. Um, but in general, they then after they've smelt and, you know, they've been able to see something, that's when the other senses kick in. So when they go to bite something and this is why some a, a number of shark attacks aren't necessarily fatal is because for them to engage with something so this is when they're engaging with the the touch sense they they bump something and if they want to taste something to get a better idea of what it is uh obviously they've got very sharp teeth there's a lot of them um and they'll bite something so that's the senses they use but they've got also got electroreception and this is where it gets really interesting with shark deterrence because they use this because in really um say poor visibility if there's a poor if it's poor visibility and they can't you know make out where the prey specifically is um they'll use this sense to to find where the specific prey is but also a lot of them, as you'll see, their eyes will roll back in their head to protect their eyes or they'll have like a membrane that roll that um, covers their eyes when they hunt. So then they're protecting their eyes from something, but they're also going in blind. So they can use that electroreception to, to pick up the electrical signals from a specific prey and then they can hone in. And that's where it's really cool because that's where we have shark shields and other devices that are, emit some electrical signal that interferes or, or it's just too intense for their their sensitive um, electroreceptors and then that's how they do do they work that's genuinely a question friends and i have wondered aloud um i believe they're anklets is that right yeah so i don't think so the shark bands the ones that you that you can wear i don't know specific research that proves them i don't think it has the research credibility or the or the um, and I could be wrong, you know, I may haven't seen the science. There's a lot of science that's happening all the time in this field, but, um, you know, I, from what my understanding is the most tested shark deterrent is the shark shield, which is, um, uh, it's also, also the shark shield also called the ocean guardian. It's a, it's a one that has like a, a band that, um, so it looks like a, a leash that attract uh, that you tie onto your, um, into your ankle if you're diving and it's like a band that emits a um, electrical signal and that they also attract um, attach them to surfboards and and that but yeah they're meant to be the most effective almost most studied uh, shark deterrent and they do work um, from the studies it looks pretty positive but there's no guarantee you know you could have one of them on and, and I, I still think if that shark's yeah, experience a lot of them or something and, and it, it's used it's almost habituated to it somehow i don't know if, if that's possible but if so i don't i don't think there is any 100 percent definitive you know safe but but the the um the spectrum i guess on the spectrum of how effective effective shark deterrence are that that specific shark deterrent works. I'm not sure about the bands. There's quite a few different shark deterrents. You talked about, um, oh, we haven't talked about it, but you know, the shark eyes that you can, you can use. 
I've heard of those. Do they work as well? I think like it's a really cool design. I don't think they've gone through that rigid scientific testing. I don't know how um, if they can they can actually provide proof of it being effective on the science from a scientific perspective. But it's a really cool idea. Like you know the ambush predators. So thinking in a in a, a simple ecological sense, you know they're not going to attack something that can see them. So if you put shark eyes on your scuba tank or your board or or any of those devices, like for me, like it makes sense um, from a very simplistic point of view and i think it's i'm pretty sure shark eyes from uh, my understanding is designed by a guy in in south australia i'm pretty sure he's like a big wave surfer and Mm. um, he's also an abalone diver so he wanted to design something i think he just started drawing eyes on on his wet so i just yeah started along the lines of doing shark eyes and it's really evolved since then i've actually I've got shark eyes. I don't, I can't testify to them being really effective. I don't know, but they were just so affordable that I thought, you, you know what, 20 or 30 bucks. <laughs> I don't know sure if they've got the science, yeah, scientific backing, but, you know, it, it makes me feel that just slightly bit better that I'm wearing some of eyes. And it's true, like, if you, if you died with sharks, God, you've got to keep eye contact. Like it's crucial you're watching them. And, and it's like one of the golden rules if you go diving with sharks or if you see them in the wild, you know, they're ambush predators. So, of course, keeping eye contact is key. So you touched upon then the shark's eyes rolling back inside their heads and then relying on the electromagnetic field um, sense to do the last kind of final meters. Is that correct? Is that visual I've just kind of created in my head? Is that is that right? Yeah. So it's um, I think it's something they would use in like, um, you know, situations where there's low light or it's very it's a very turbid environment, so they can't see. It's just another sense that they would engage. So if they're about to prey on something, and and they there are species that has have a nectating membrane that, that comes across their eyes to protect their eyes, then they're essentially going blind. So it gives them for that meter or two that they, they really engage. Cause it's not something that it's, it's not as sensitive as people think. They don't, they can't sense electrical signals from, from quite a distance away, but if they're close, they can definitely sense it. So with, with, you know, a classic example, a lot of sharks biting on motors of boats and it's just the electrical signal from the motor that is intriguing the shark and it's probably curious about it. And that's why it's, as it biting it or it's interested in it. And yeah, it is definitely something they will engage when they're about to, to prey on something. And they've, they've got a whole host of sensors. Another really cool one. And a lot of fish have it is just the lateral lines along their body. So it's basically like these canals, um, along the side of their body and they can feel pressure waves. So if they feel a pressure wave from a far, far enough point, um, they can sense it along their body and like the lines, you can actually see them on, on, on the sharks. You can see the, the lateral lines. They're like these hollow canals that have like very fine hairs. And then, wow. The, the biology of sharks is just amazing. You know, we're talking about 440 million years. These animals have been on this planet, which is outstanding. You know, they've, they've outlived dinosaurs and, and a host of other species and they've remained relatively unad they have, they've barely had to adapt, you know, like they're so well suited to the environment. 
Um, and they've just got these traits that we utilize, you know, we're, we're studying shark antibodies to look at their, um, you know, their properties to help with bacterial infections, especially this is like a huge concern when antibiotics are going to become resistant to all, um, you know, to all the bacteria infections and diseases that we get. So we're looking at shark antibodies for that. We look at, we all use shark skin for like swimming and they design because shark skin is, it's teeth. If you look at it under the microscope, it's fascinating because it's just all these, they're called denticles and there's all these very small teeth that are, are that are shaped as like as at a specific angle. So if you run your, um, you know, if you ever have a chance to touch a shark, if you run your um, hand along the skin of the shark, one way it's quite smooth and that's the way that they'll be swimming um, against. So then they're very streamlined and it's all the hydrodynamics in the water, whereas the other way is really rough. So it's like, feels like leather. Um, and that's the, so it's basically lots and lots of teeth and they've, they can replace their actual teeth that they use in their jaws. Um, they've got, you know, thousands of teeth, depends on the species, but they've got different designs and they're, they're just they're amazing animals. And they're so I just want to like, you know, reiterate to everyone how many species there are because when people think of sharks, they're, they're kind of labelized as, as the main three that we talk about a lot, but there's just so many other cool species. There's so many species that are found in the depths of the ocean. There's species that live for hundreds of years, like the Greenland shark. They're just incredible. Um, and then there's other species that are just really small, like the cookie cutter shark, that, that thing's pretty, pretty crazy. Um, yeah, there, there's so many different species out there and the, the species I studied in New Zealand were fascinating. The seven gill shark, they're, they're like a primitive order of modern day sharks. So a similar species is like the six gill shark that people may have seen in documentaries that are really slow moving and found in, in deeper waters. They're all part of the cow shark family. And they're, they're, seeing them was incredible. I went to see them diving underwater in Fjordland and very sluggish and slow moving, but graceful as well. And I, I just found them like big puppy dogs as sharks. So you mentioned with sharks, they're, they're so finely formed as top predators uh, in, in a kind of a similar way that crocodiles have in that they've lasted a million years in one kind of similar iteration. They're so perfectly formed for for ambush attacks that they haven't really had to change that much since you know the dinosaurs went extinct is that the same with sharks are they just so perfectly formed that they haven't really had to evolve significantly yeah i think it's because there's just such there's such a diverse claim of predators you know there's like i was saying there's over 500 described species and i'm sure there's a lot more species and, and over that course of 440 million years you know of evolution i think it's their ability to adapt and diversify that's really kept that clade of predators alive and they're just they're so integrated into the ecosystem and this is where it gets really interesting is because we don't really understand as scientists the effects of what happens when you remove them we're only starting to understand now but there's not that much um, empirical evidence of what happens when sharks are completely removed from a habitat or an ecosystem or a specific area and that's where we have to be really careful because it's quite a, a delicate um, 
balance. And one of my mates puts it really good. It's like a house of cards and, you know, you remove, you can remove one card and the whole house will come crumbling down. And, mm. and it's kind of like that in ecosystems there. There's so many interactions that are happening between different species. You know, sharks are a lot of the times with many species, you know, they're, they're predators. So they're, they're like the doctors of the sea to say, you know, they're, they're eating sick and injured animals. Um, they're, they're keeping their, their populations that they prey upon in check. So then there's not too many of whatever they're eating because if there is, then there's too many of them than whatever the prey that they're eating will eat more of whatever they're eating. And then it has these flow on effects and that cause it's called a trophic cascade. Mm, mm. But big thing with sharks and it's not just what they prey, it's they change the whole behavior of, you know, the whole ecosystem things. There's so much predator avoid, uh, yeah, predator avoidance that happens that, you know, it was really interesting, a study in, in Western Australia, uh, up North and they found that, Tiger sharks influenced, you know, the amount of healthy seagrass and the distribution wow. of seagrass. There's all these blown effects where um, tiger sharks are influencing, you know, dugong behaviour and all these others t- like turtle behaviour and stuff. And as soon as it's very simplified, but they they not only prey upon these species, they you know influence whatever behaviour these animals have, and it's that change where you remove that predator then the animal starts going to habitats that they're not used to and then it has all these flow-on effects and yeah ecosystems and 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 it's why just biodiversity is so important you know yeah yeah. we've seen it time and time again with invasive species on land and in the water you know you add one species that upsets that delicate framework of that ecosystem and it, it either explodes or, you know, you can have these mesopredator releases where you remove the apex predators, so you remove white sharks, tiger sharks, um, bull sharks, you know, seven gull sharks, any of these species, you remove them. And then all the prey, they're such broad consumers. Like all those animals I just mentioned, eat such a diverse range of prey over their lifetime. Like a lot of them have prey shifts as, as they develop, their teeth change, they're able to hunt different animals. So they go from fish to, you know, some, something bigger over their lifetime and they'll start going for marine mammals and stuff. So it's really interesting the amount and variety of prey that they consume and how integrated they all are in the ecosystem. And it's, it's why we need, you know, sharks in the ocean and it's why we've got to have really, really smart management. So management where we, we deploy really, um, shark friendly practices to um you know help with shark safety in general and it's something that like i really i need to get across to people is that we are so concerned about you know being fearful of sharks or being predated on by sharks but at the end of the day they have so much more to fear from us from my research from what i see there's the statistics are just so alarming you can have like I think they report it's from like 70 million to 270 million sharks are caught every year. And that is such an immense and unsustainable amount. And a lot of these species are so slow growing, you know, like you can go, we can go out and and go fishing for like vast schools of fish and, you know, that they reproduce a lot. They produce a lot of eggs, whereas something like a shark can be quite long lived. It can take years to become reproductive 
to be able to actually reproduce um, and so it has a late maturity and then it can also you know produce a very select specialized number of young so they'll produce say one or two young so it's like very specialized predators and you know you take out such a vast number of so many of them you know it's going to take a long time for these populations to recover and they they simply can't like that that fishing pressure is just immense so people need to to understand that you know a lot of the fish and chips a lot of the stuff we eat is, is sharks um we've got to do our research and we've got to put in marine reserves we've got to you know use use effective ways of monitoring sharks and and big ones bycatch having observers and boats having videos or like uh yeah videos on boats so we can keep an eye on the amount of bycatch we get like having specific areas having that we protect having specific targets and thresholds like this is where management is key if we really wanted to ensure that we have an ocean that our you know future generations our children and their children can see and enjoy just like we have it's a really good point that you make that the continued health of our oceans is under threat, uh, particularly from overfishing, um, human consumption, and that something like a trophic cascade or an extinction crisis could engulf our oceans. Um, and also you mentioned there that a lot of the fish and chips that we eat is actually shark. A lot of that white kind of meat is actually shark. Um, what is something that the average person at home can do to try and make sure we give our oceans a fighting chance yes that's a really good question i think a lot of people and i speak for myself as well feel quite helpless when we talk about big problems like this because you think well what am i going to do you know what can i actually really do that's going to going to be a positive change or actually help this because this stuff happens really far offshore we don't see a lot of people don't see this at all. Um, so I think my advice to people would be like eat sustainable sustainably. So especially with seafood, you know, get seafood apps. There's, a, there's amazing apps that can tell you whether the fish that you eat sustainable or not, because a lot of sharks that get caught are bycatch. So they're, they're incidentally caught in a number of fisheries like long lines or or more so like trawls are, are det- detrimental so yeah use use sustainable seafood app um support conservation practices you know we need marine reserves pr- and protected areas um and there's a big push for them at the moment but they need you know there's a lot lot of outcry against them as well so we need people supporting them and, and getting behind them especially like getting behind the science and the advice of scientists. So making sure we designate protected areas or whatever the scientists say about managing shark populations. So in, in some, some instances, I think for like sustainability in general for fish, it's a lot about, you know, managing actual fisheries themselves. So dealing with the threat. Mm. So, you know, managing, you know, what, how many fishing fleets or how many fishing vessels there are, what they're catching, um, having, you know, good practices in place and this is where international coordination and agreement is going to be huge because you've got the high seas which are areas where then they're out of everyone's you know exclusive economic zones they're they're basically open waters that 
Now they come out of, they're not part of any country's jurisdiction. So a lot of countries fish there and it means a lot of species that like a shark that migrates all various places in the ocean is, is very vulnerable in other parts. So I think it's about getting behind conservation, um, doing what you can personally, eating sustainably, you know, reading up yourself, learning yourself and, and yeah, not being so scared of sharks. I think keep it in perspective. We, we live in so much fear in this world as it is like you've got to be realistic and realize there's <laughs> the fear that you've created is rational that there are times where people live in areas that are really sharky and i can i can understand that coming from wa but the chances are just so low you know to keep in perspective then they're not the jaws menacing predator that they're made out to be and there's, there's a lot of species that are are fundamental and essential for our oceans so we've got to get behind scientists and conservationists that are working really hard to to keep them alive that's a really good point so my next question comes from just kind of living in australia it's kind of in the zeitgeist and i'd love to get your expert advice on it so when you see a seal or a pod of dolphins or a bait ball in the ocean is that a sign that there's going to be sharks in and around this area do they attract sharks um, I think so it really depends what you see when you're out there in the environment. So, you know, if you see bait bulls, there's going to be other sharks circling around. If there's a productive area, I think you've got to be smart and there's definitely a higher chance of seeing sharks if there's a feeding frenzy around the bait bulls, you know. They're, they're probably hunting around these big bait bulls. I know it happened in, in Ballina with a few frequent attacks. There was just an, an anomaly with these massive bait bulls. Um, so, yeah, it's something if you see dolphins, seals, I think <laughs> there was, there was a, a number of theories going years back during the drum lines and people were saying they kept seeing dolphins before the um, when there was fatal attacks. And then there was also another one saying that like seals had realized that we were more vulnerable to sharks. So if they saw a shark and they felt threatened, they would, they would guide the shark to us to escape. <laughs> so I don't know the validity in these. I don't know if these are just myths people creating, but personally, if I see anything that, that is necessarily sharky, so I see a big bait ball, I see lots of birds diving, you know, the perfect, the prime examples of, um, the marine activity, I'd probably get out. Um, and you've got to, yeah, dolphins, uh, you're fine most of the times. I think sharks would probably be more scared of dolphins if or, or anything because, um, you know, they're, they're formidable predators themselves, dolphins. Mm, mm. dolphins, And you hear, you hear lots of stories of encounters. But, yeah, I probably wouldn't go swimming in a – in an area that's really deep and there's lots of sea, lots of seals, you know, flailing around. I, I think that's probably not necessary, but you know, if it's in the shallows and it's just close, close in land, I think that's fine. I think it's just uh, keeping common, common sense in these scenarios and, and think, think what a shark would do, you know, where, where they'd be hunting, what, what time of day. The big one is just to limit doing things by yourself. Not only like, well, personally, like that's 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 my point. Is like you know you're endangering yourself if something happens. If you're if you're free diving, you, you drown, and no one's there to help you. Number one, but yeah, if something happens to the shark, that they've had studies, and I remember in my time in South Africa, they were telling us of a study where when 
they towed sealed decoys when they had a group. The shark breaches weren't that common compared to when they had the single decoy. Decoy sharks were breaching a lot more. So they're opportunistic predators. They're going to seize an opportunity like that where they see an animal by itself. So especially a seal, you know, it's a big part of their prey. Um, so, yeah, I think being by yourself, looking at if there's any signs, you know, if it's, if it's, if there's a lot of rainfall and you're in a river mouth and then, you know, it's murky conditions, it's probably a dangerous situation to be in. So yeah, I'll, I'll avoid that. And yeah, if there's a whale carcass around, especially in Western Australia, this happens a lot, uh, avoid swimming in, in or around the area. I remember seeing a whale carcass, um, down South and I had a drone at the time. So I took the drone out and no kidding. I, I spotted a shark like straight away and there were people surfing like 500 meters down the beach. So I think it's, there's just to be a common sense sense and, and listen yeah. to lifeguards and all, you know, all the people that give you advice about um, shark safety, use them. And I, I think it's a, it's a pretty, cool space in the sense that there's just so much technology you know at the at the at our disposal we've got drones nowadays that can monitor sharks we've got um one of my mates has invented a air blimp which is you know wow airship for monitoring sharks which is amazing we've got they've like lots of sharks are tagged so they can be picked up in acoustic receivers and they can notify the necessary uh, authorities like the lifeguards on the beach. There's just so many different s- cool technologies that we have in the age that we're living. It's 2020. So I think um, it's a cool space to watch and all the preventative stuff like drones, they'll have um, rec- automated recognition software where they'll be able to determine, they already have, where they'll be able to determine what species um, they detect. So then we could, you know, have these state-of-the-art monitoring techniques to increase. Mm, mm. It's pretty cool space. And I think that's, that's, has a lot of room to develop all these non-invasive means. Um, yeah. So Michael, my very last question is if you're out surfing, swimming, and you see a large shark, something like maybe three meters or above, or just a kind of generally a large shark, and you think it could be a bull shark, a tiger shark, or a great white, what is the best thing for you to do in that scenario? Uh, so I'm going to be sarcastic here and say, you know, panic, splash the water, yell, you know, freak out. They're perfect signs that you're potential prey to the species. So in that situation, if you see a shark, um, it really comes down to your, your reaction. So as I was joking around, but I, I should be serious, panicking and swimming or panicking is and swimming to the shore or just sprinting anywhere because you're, you're panicking is definitely going to increase the risk of you being attacked. So I think if you're in a group of people, you know, remain in that group, that's a really good, good way to deter the shark. Um, as I was saying before, the opportunistic predators are the most likely going to go after an individual. That's with most predators if they get an opportunity. Um, you know, sometimes if it's inquisitive, um, you know, it's swimming around you, it's curious, you can swim towards it and you can try and match its aggression. You know, I've done that before with um, other species. Like we've had set, even just like 
Because a lot of shark species are dangerous if they're provoked or, you know, they have the potential to be. So I think you can try and match their aggression. And if you, you know, if it starts swimming towards you and you feel threatened, you can always try and put something between you and it. So if you've got a, I don't know if you'd be diving with a, with a GoPro pole or just anything, you know, your spear gun, if you have that, try and put something between you. And, and the big thing is just to try not to panic, you know, for me, I've always said keep eye contacts huge just from what I've seen and talked to shark. A lot of people that I know that dive with sharks and are like avid shark divers, um, just tell me how important it is, you know, it's a golden rule to keep eye contact. They're ambush predators, so um, they will try and attack when they can't, when you can't see them and when they have an opportunity like that. And, yeah, try as calmly to leave the water as you can. So in my personal experiences, that was fine. It worked. But I guess in the event that, you know, it comes to bite you, it's curious. Um, obviously, try and fight it off. I would do that in any ways. Like we are saying, they've got the sensitive, they've got on their snout is where they've got the um, electroreceptors. So punch it in, in the snout, in its nose, you know, poke its eyes, its gills, any of that all the sensitive areas in the body in the, in, in the very unfortunate and, and unlikely event that, you know, it was biting you. But I think they're, they're just pretty basic, but key steps to try to avoid it. The, the main thing is just to be calm, you know, and there's things that attract them and you can avoid, you know, we, we wear lots of shiny jewelry, but you know, we all know that reflecting light can attract a lot of species because it can resemble fish scales. Um, so, you know, sometimes that isn't the best thing. There's, there's all these myths that some colors attract sharks like yellow and, and orange, um, and also peeing in your wetsuit is a big one I'm guilty of, but apparently <laughs> uh, I can't, I can't really help that one. <laughs> but, okay, doing that. but yeah, I think, um, yeah, the keys and also really good. And this is something I'd recommend to everyone is to have, you know, a first aid kit with you. Uh, I think a first aid kit is great in the event of a shark attack. I know there's actually a couple, there's one down South in bunker bay one of my a couple mates ended up pulling the guy out um he was surfing and got attacked and they applied first aid he he survived they did some really good first aid and he's fine um but it's just testament to him being in a group of people the guys that they're heroes um they they swam towards or paddled towards him as he was getting attacked and then they just went to help him so you know it was a very heroic effort from those guys wow good Um, on them yeah Right. And it shows them to do that. Yeah, exactly. I think it's just that, you know, wanting to help each other. And the first aid's key, you know. If you've got a kit that has like a tourniquet mm-hmm. that or like has some form of, you know, you can get like Israeli bandages or like heavy duty bandages for severe bleeds. Like they're great. I've got, um, there's one, there's a surf aid kit you can get. And I highly recommend it. it's from Australia and it's got tourniquets. It's the best first aid kit. I've got my lifeguard and I've had it for like a, over a year now. So there's different like water, you know, um, ocean using act. Uh, first aid kits, but I take that maybe I take it with me everywhere in the event of you know any first aid. Um, and if there's a shark attack, I know I've got a, a tourniquet on me, and that can be life saving. You know, if someone's had 
a bite over through a major artery, you know, you can apply the tourniquet and, and cut and stop the blood loss. That's, that's a huge one is a lot of the people, if it's just a singular bite, it's just the loss of blood, the sheer loss that is how a lot of people die. So I think the first aid is also key in those situations. Michael, I think you're the kind of person, if I was ever out on the water and I saw a shark, I would want to be with you. <laughs> I'd love to see one with you as well. I think that would probably make me feel the most calm I could be in the face of a large predator. (laughs) It's very easy talking about staying calm when you're not near a large shark, but I have no idea what would happen if you saw one. I imagine you'd probably just go into override. Yeah, and I think that's it. You know, it's just, if you see so many predators if you start acting like their prey what do you think they're going to do you know i've seen videos where and this is just on youtube where guys have been scuba diving and it's there with a tiger shark and you see this one guy panic and so he just starts to ascend and he's just swimming away fast and this tiger shark honestly just switches and it sees him and then you can see it like switches into predator mode and then cruises right up to him and he keeps swimming away, he's freaking out, and then he stops. And as soon as he stops, his tiger shark just swims away. And like I've, I've had encounters like that. Like I've had one where like a shark, like sharks have aggressively come up to me, just you know snorkeling or like diving up north, and you know just remaining. Yeah, it's I couldn't say how important it is to remain calm in the unlikely event you see one. It's just with most things, you know, panicking isn't really going to help. Michael, thank you so much for your time. It's been so enlightening having you on the podcast. Uh, it's been a thrill to chat to you about sharks uh, and find out a little bit more about your your adventures. Um, you have your own podcast. So if people wanted to find you and find out a little bit more information, uh, wh- where can they go? Uh, yeah, so I've got my own podcast. It's just about shark research that's happening around the world to you know give people an idea about the fascinating work that a lot of scientists get up to, like myself and and a lot of my peers. Um, so the podcast is called the Murky Waters Podcast. Uh, so far, there's been one season, you know, we look at, um, we talked about shark antibodies. We talked about the drones. I've had uh, a, a scientist who specifically tests shark deterrents. He came on and told me a lot about different shark deterrents. Um, we just delve into the really fascinating world of all this research. So check it out. It's called the Murky Waters Podcast. I've got another season uh, coming up uh, early next year. So there should be some really interesting stuff that comes out on it. So, yeah, check it out. And if you want to, you know, you're welcome to contact me if you want to talk about any of my research or talk about anything marine science related. And just want to say, Dan, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. You know, it's great to come on and to talk about these things. I thought you asked some really good questions. And, you know, I'd love an opportunity to come back on in the future and, and to, to dive into some more questions. Michael, thank you again. It's really been fascinating learning about your adventures from South Africa uh, over to Australia, your experiences with sharks firsthand, uh, and generally just about your 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 knowledge. So thank you for imparting that on me today. Um, and look, hopefully we can chat again some somewhere down the line. Um, thank you so much. Awesome. It's been my pleasure, Dan. All the best. Thank you so Thanks much, again. Michael.
Thank you for listening to Untracked Wilds. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 